0: I'm sad for Billy Bean. He could have been the highest paid GM in sports instead. But his he's... family. Yeah, I know.
1: In that case, let's explain how a man used statistics to win several baseball games. Welcome back to There Will Be Movies, Volume 2. This is 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade, and this volume is 2010 to 2019. Episode 30, Moneyball. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips, noted baseball expert. Ben, are you excited to get into the intricacies of, like, the designated hitter rule and and that kind of stuff? Basically, this movie
0: just reinforced my knowledge that if I ever did get into sports, Mm -hmm. I would fall into, like, the statistical (laughs) fantasy element of it and never, ever, ever emerge.
1: You would have so many spreadsheets just (laughs) open at all times whenever watching it would be great. I once attended a basketball game where a man was sitting there with a notepad, and he'd, like, sketched himself up this elaborate, like, little grid, and he was doing little circles and X's and just marking every single thing that happened in the game, and I was like, dude, this stuff is available on the internet, like, if you really want it, but no, he was, I guess it's just a thing he did. Anyway, yes, this is Moneyball, uh, and we are British, and we're gonna talk about baseball, America's pastime, uh, with the level of expertise you've come to expect from this podcast. This was directed by Bennett Miller, the only other yeah, movie he made this decade that would be worth considering is Foxcatcher which I think is decent but I wouldn't consider putting on the list. Yeah
0: like it feels like it's kind of trading off of this except it yeah. elevates the personalities of the movie above kind of what the movie's trying to achieve. Like it's so much more of a triple hand than this where mm. you've just got solid performances from Pitt and Hill and Philip Seymour Hoffman but none of them kind of overtake the movie but the entire thing with Foxcatcher is like look at what Steve Carell's doing look at what Channing Tatum's doing and it kind of gets... You say that, but for me, Mark Ruffalo was the revelation from that movie. Like, he looked like a oh, different sure. person. I, I, he's, <laughs> he's the one that's kind of doing the most subtle work of the three. Yeah. I just remember a lot of the kind of preamble was about like, look at what they've done to Steve Carell.
1: And <laughs> look, Channing Tatum's a big boy actor now. This was written by Steve Zalian of Schindler's List, Mission Impossible, Gangs of New York, etc. Legendary screenwriter, I shouldn't need to list off his credit. He originally wrote it, and then Aaron Sorkin, based basically came in on request of the furious Sony execs who did not like the direction it was going in at the time, and it's of course based on Moneyball The Art of Winning an Unfair Game by Michael Lewis. I picked this one. It's Aaron Sorkin, it's a sports movie, this is just right in my wheelhouse. I don't think it's one of the strongest films on our list, but I do enjoy it a great deal. I think it manages to communicate some very dense information in a way that seems very simple, and finds a human story in amongst this, like, big barrage of maths and stuff. And, yeah, I'm just really into it, and, like, yeah, it's very Sorkin-y. Although, uh, see, slightly that's, less that's Sorkin-y that's,
0: than usual, I guess. That's the influence of Zalian's script still being there. That's what I was going to say. Is like It feels, after watching Social Network, it yeah. feels so much <laughs> less kind of indebted to the vocal ticks of yeah. a Sorkin script. Like It feels like it's probably more or less the structure of what Zalian put down. I mean, it's got the normal Sorkin issues of, like, there is one <laughs> female character in this movie, or two with the daughter.
1: <laughs> yeah, they edited out his second wife. He comes across as this drunk divorcee who's just, like, so sad and alone. But, like, there's a whole-ass wife in the movie that just got all of her scenes cut and he's wearing a wedding ring and it's, like, it kind of looks like he's still wearing his ring from his first marriage. Like, no, 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 that's for his second marriage. But Do, do we know who they cast as Uh, well? Catherine Morris. Okay. Her scenes were on the Blu-ray, but I have not seen them. I think there are a couple of little scenes where it's, like, that's definitely Sorkin, like, where he keeps asking the same question to the scouts over and over. That feels very, like, straight from Sorkin. But, yeah, it doesn't have... Sorkin talks, it doesn't have the cross-talking, the non-sequiturs where people are having three conversations at once. Yeah, like, it doesn't feel like
0: anyone's more intelligent than anyone else, apart from when he brings in Jonah Hill, but the entire thing is kind of deriding what he's bringing to the table.
1: I think it's sort of like, you're getting kind of, some of Sorkin's better qualities without some of the stuff that people hate, although, yeah, the the complete lack of women is is very on-brand for him. But, I mean,
0: he didn't do the casting. I'm not to say that every movie has to have women in it, but... And this is a movie about kind of the very masculine era that is Mm -hmm. sports in America. So it it is kind of hard to find places for women to be in roles that are not subservient to men. It's just when you've covered two movies by the same scriptwriter in a row and (laughs) both of them have very minimized presence of women, even though I enjoy both movies a great deal. As I said, like Social Network is my favorite movie of the decade. I think Moneyball is like up there for 2011. I don't Mm. love it in the same way just because I think it's almost a harder task than Social Network in some ways. I don't think it's quite as successful but I think that's just the difference between like Bennett Miller and Fincher.
1: Briefly Steven Soderbergh was making this and that's what led to Amy Pascal like losing her shit about the direction the movie was going and I desperately want to see Steven Soderbergh's Moneyball
0: I think Steven Soderbergh would be a terrific choice to direct yeah. this
1: like you wouldn't have Sorkin but like Soderbergh was determined that like he wanted all of the key figures to play themselves he shot a bunch of stuff with like retired baseball players like giving interviews to camera kind of stuff and he wanted to like really bombard the audience with even more information than they are here and he was like I really want it to be really funny as well and like that it was becoming very arty for how Oh, much money it cost. And I think they tried to like kill the movie or put it in turnaround. And then uh, Soderbergh just bounced and they got Bennett Miller instead. So I would desperately like to see Stephen Soderbergh's Moneyball.
0: It is interesting because this is kind of nearing the end of Brad Pitt leading man kind of era. Because after this, he kind of disappears a little bit. So he does Moneyball killing themselves with World War Z. Hmm. And then he kind of pops up in like a second or third fiddle role in quite a few movies. And he just doesn't do lead roles as often. It It's kind of like he does Fury and War Machine really in the next kind of like five years, but he's definitely not like a presence.
1: His name sure is big on the poster though.
0: (laughs) Oh no, I mean, but it's just this kind of like, it it feels like it's Brad Pitt moving more into like a producer role, into more of a executive role. And is this the last time he got nominated for an Oscar before he wins with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? i guess <laughs> after this he gets nominations for best picture because he's a producer on money he's produced on 12 years a slave and he's produced on the big short so his next three mm-hmm. nominations after this are for best picture and then he doesn't come back for a, a like an oscar-winning turn until he wins last year
1: i like that he has sort of done this because i mean he is still acting obviously but the idea that like much like billy bean it's like him moving from star player or big name player to like getting behind the scene like starting to learn the trade of behind the camera kind of stuff and then moving over to that side of it mean, mm. he produces some good stuff and like I think he got praised for like how much stuff he produces featuring like black creative voices but without like you know trying to take any credit for himself or you know like he does it in a, in a just quiet way and like that's what people want so this movie was made for 50 million dollars on the one hand I'm shocked it didn't cost more because just anything like this where you're trying to to realistically depict such a large machine, like a sport and you're licensing the actual names and logos and uniforms and all of that stuff, but Brad Pitt took a pay cut, Chris Pratt and Jonah Hill are probably not commanding big salaries at this point, like this is kind of the movie where people are like, oh Jonah Hill can act, um, and then he goes on to do Wolf of Wall Street, and Robin Wright is unfortunately an older woman in Hollywood on the downswing Philip Hoffman probably doesn't cost
0: a huge amount, and-, and also it's probably like him working with Bennett Miller Okay. Indeed,
1: and they they used one stadium and just kept dressing it up to be different ones. So I guess they found ways to to cut costs. But yeah, I mean, uh,
0: that's the thing is an awful lot of this is filmed in kind of the in the workings of the stadium rather than yeah the on bit the, the bit the fans don't see. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they kind of like can keep on redressing that to look like different rooms, different buildings, make it seem like it is. And then I feel like they're doing that thing where like they'll shoot one corner of the stands and then they'll just move all the extras to another corner of the stands and like. Show shuffle them around or like get into actual Oakland A's games that are going on at the time and just kind of say like pretend it's 2002 <laughs> and a lot of the scouts are actual scouts I
1: think there's like three actors in that room and the rest are legit and they probably are taking less money than they could just because it's like well you're not an actor and I'm Like, oh cool I'd love to be in your movie
0: it was so weird seeing Nick Cersei as one <laughs> of the scouts I don't think he's got a line of dialogue
1: <laughs> probably on the cutting room floor but it made 110 million dollars So, likely only just broke even. I don't really remember what the marketing push was like for this, but I remember it feeling like a big deal, probably off the Oscar campaign. And it is 133 minutes, so... I think it is a smidge long. It's quite a floaty movie. It's kind of just, like, a lot of things happen. And the big thing that is famous about the movie, like, the big wind streak, occurs, like, what, 20 minutes from the end? Yeah, I think
0: think once the big win streak's over, you feel like that's the climax of the movie, but there's Mm. still this, like... 10 15 minute segment of him I'm going to worry about whether or not he's going to take the paycheck and I felt yeah. the pay the I pay- think time that's wasn't. interesting
1: I just kind of think that the the path between I think I think it starts really well and like once he's got Jonah on board and like obviously you need to have some opposition to like what they're trying to do but the kind of the time it takes to get from there to them going on the win streak I think you could easily lose 10 15 minutes from but yeah, I guess I guess there is quite a windy bit at the end and you're like I it definitely it was like, oh and it's basically over now, right? We got like one more scene. And it's like, nope, there's about four more scenes. <laughs> but Benjamin, why don't you take us through the rest of twenty eleven in film?
0: Yes, as is tradition, we are covering a best picture nomination. This did not win, it lost to the artist. We're in the this kind of like decade for the Oscars where an awful lot of the movies that are winning are kind of like throwbacky movies or mm-hmm. movies that are about like things that Hollywood really likes and so the artist is a throwback to silent cinema and it's a thing that the Oscars really like doing is like movies that glamorise and make Hollywood seem like it was the best thing ever the Academy really likes movies about movies doesn't it <laughs> it does it does but other nominations that year The Descendants Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close probably one of the most confusing Oscar nominations of all time because it's just not a good movie but The Help which is unfortunate Hugo Midnight in Paris also unfortunate Moneyball Tree of Life and War horse, in which a horse goes to a war map <laughs>
1: That's true, I can't confirm.
0: the movies on this list that are good are yeah. very good, it's just there's an awful lot of like why, like, I mean <laughs> Midnight in Paris is like good for latter era Woody Allen, it's just it's latter era Woody Allen mm-hmm. and we shouldn't have to deal with latter era Woody Allen uh, he's gonna get his noms no matter what though isn't he but yeah like solid list for the movies that are good but it's just this year more than any feels like there's a lot of kind of like really that movie and got on the list? Confusion, but let's talk about movies that critics really enjoyed in 2011, obviously number one Tree of Life a movie which it's just kind of hilarious that a Terrence Malik movie is up for Best Picture and I can imagine an awful lot of people going to see this movie and walking out of it being incredibly confused about what they've just watched
1: <laughs> have you have you seen Tree of Life? I haven't no it doesn't seem my cup of tea
0: <laughs> I don't think it's your cup of tea. (laughs) The other great movies from this year, A Separation, Margaret, an utterly fantastic movie, Delayed, several years, Weekend, the Andrew Hay movie, we need to talk about Kevin, Mm. uh, Hugo Drive, as we discussed last week, Bridesmaids, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Take Shelter, Shame, Attack the Block. There's a lot of good movies, it's just, none of them are movies that I would go like, this is my favourite of the decade. I picture you as being someone who really, really likes Hugo. Hugo's lovely, but it's also not my favourite Scorsese of the decade. Okay. for Wall Street and The Irishman above Hugo, but Hugo is an utterly lovely movie. Yeah.
1: So, how did this one do for us over in the UK? You know, not a very Brit-friendly subject matter, but we love an Oscar
0: movie, so... Although, obviously, that wouldn't have been announced at this time, would it? No, we wouldn't. So, yeah, the movie debuts at number 10 at the UK box office, making the equivalent of <sighs> I saw it I don't know if it was Opening weekend Or if we kind of Ummed nerd about Going to see it But yeah Number 10 Behind such highlights Of UK cinema As Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1 Arthur Christmas My (laughs) week out Marilyn Immortals In Time
1: Immortals
0: I mean like Adventures of Tintin's Number 4 Which I think is A a very nice movie Mm Mm-hmm. It's Spielberg doing CGI Indiana Jones which just is entirely my bag and I really wish there was a sequel but that's like the only movie in that top 10 that I'm like yeah no I'm fully in <laughs> on that movie. I feel like you're a 50-50 fan
1: I haven't seen it since I first saw it I remember liking it but not loving it
0: Fair enough. And there we go that is where the movie comes out. I feel like looking at it it's got a very disappointing run 13th, 15th, 14th 16th, 19th, 21st Jeez, yeah. It doesn't even get an appreciable bump after a nomination either and finally, in the final week of its release, week 13, number 49th at the UK box office. Jeez, yeah.
1: Well, you know, asking anyone outside of the Americas to give a shit about baseball is quite an ask. Although, weirdly, I feel like Denmark are really good at baseball, but... Pfft. Should we look at how
0: gold did at the U.S. box office and see whether or not, like, they went <laughs> yeah, right. crazy for Goal? Which Goal? There's, there's four of them? Let's go for goal one, The okay. Dream Begins, from 2005. Okay. It makes $4.2 million at the U.S. box office, Jeez. compared to $3.7 at the U.K. box office. But considering the orders of magnitude bigger that the U.S. <laughs> is, then you can kind of see where, yeah, debuted at number three at the U.K. box office, Jeez. compared to a solid number... number. Number (laughs) nine. at the US box office. Sorry, number 13 at the US box office. Sports don't translate across the pond.
1: I guess. Obviously, I already have an interest in American sports. I think there is a long story tradition of, like, good baseball movies. That's the best trick that baseball movies play. They make baseball seem interesting when it, in fact, is not. You can kind of cut through all the time
0: that you're sent, spent like, yeah. not playing sport in baseball. Yeah. That That's the thing with American sports is they're it, all very s- slow. So much stoppage and there's so much stoppage and so much setting up what the next move is going to be. I feel like basketball is the
1: fastest paced. Yeah, but even that like a 48 minute game on the clock takes like
0: two hours and there's a lot of like, you know, commercial interruption and stuff. Sports that we play in like Europe and the UK are sports that are kind of endurance matches. Like it's 45 minutes, 40 and a half mm. and it's just solid playing throughout that entire time period. Yeah, But it's also a kind of slower game with less happening kind of every single second. Whereas mm. a lot of the American sports are like, yes, there's a lot of stoppage but that's to enable people to to talk and go get food and enjoy themselves if they're in the live atmosphere and then when something happens something happens very quickly and you know exactly stuff is going to happen in a very short frame window and then you can go back to talking and getting snacks and stuff like that i
1: have always resented the concept of the 90 plus minute draw that can happen in football. But then again, <laughs> basketball, you get final scores of, like, 120 to 117, and it's like, oh Anyway, let's talk some baseball then. So, in the 2001 playoffs, the Oakland Athletics lose to the New York Yankees. General manager Billy Bean asks for more money from his owner but doesn't get it, and their three best players sign with larger teams. I like the touch of, in the opening, putting the payrolls of the two teams up, because they will put that back into context later in the movie, but, like, the Yankees have got, like, $120 million, and
0: the A's, like, 40 or something like that, and it's just, like... Both are, like, ludicrous sums of money, but, like, you can see, like, what the movie's trying to do in terms of, like, they are wildly outmatched when this team is, like, three times as well-paid.
1: American sports have... Salary caps, which we don't have over here, so, like, the concept of, like, being able to purchase a title or whatever is, in theory, not possible, but baseball, I feel, is the exception because the New York Yankees, time and time again, do just spend more than everyone else, and they get this, like, huge lineup of all-stars, and, yeah, they buy the A's best player and stuff like that, and just the economic disparity of it, and we right away see some of Billy's, like, idiosyncrasies, like, listening to the game alone, in an empty stadium on a radio uh, smashing things, you know these are his character traits, he breaks a lot of stuff. I don't want to encourage toxic hyper-masculinity and punching walls and stuff, but it is kind of funny watching Brad Pitt like flip a desk and stuff like that
0: I like the movie kind of alternates between these very quiet moments where it seems like he's got his shit together and then he'll have like a few seconds of just lashing out at everything
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Like, and it, and it happens all throughout the movie, like you see it in like the, the montage of his baseball career where he's just like, Mm -hmm. I I don't think a single bat he touches survives.
1: (laughs) I like, though, that he is broad-picture. He is a nice man. And, like, you're expecting to see with a movie like this in a world like that, like, that this guy would be, like, a total asshole. But Yeah, I
0: I like that the movie kind of drills down into... It doesn't ever explicitly state kind of what he's doing. And obviously, like, there's the subtext of the movie where, like, you have the players who are like, oh, the GM doesn't socialise with the team. And he says it's also that he can, like... (laughs) distance himself and be able to cut people with ease and not kind of like feel emotionally attached but the thing that's actually happening there is it's more about like he just doesn't want to have to be there Hmm. because he thinks he's a jinx and will ruin the games if he arrives at the stadium there is that yeah and
1: also like this idea that like you know he initially tries to make jonah hill's character colder and more ruthless but then they don't really emphasize it but kind of the reverse ends up happening where that connection, you know, they're they're in it together and it makes him nicer and he starts actually developing these relationships with the players that he never had previously and like we see him cut someone in like seconds and then later on when he has to do it to the guy with like the two knee braces like it seems like, oh fuck, this is why I don't do it. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. he's actually started to bond with them but that's much later. We see the first of several scenes with like him and his team of scouts and this is kind of like one of the more famous scenes in the movie and like some of this chat that the, the scouts come up with where they have like the big board and they're trying to assemble their new team and like Billy asking stuff like can he hit and they come up with a dozen ways of saying it without actually saying yes, you know? Like, oh, when he hits it, you hear it all over the park and he's got a real good-looking swing. And it's like, that is not a response to can he hit. Like, yeah, like,
0: it, like you haven't given me what percentage of times if you threw a ball at him, he could hit that ball. But, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyone can hit a ball well when they hit the ball, but if they're <laughs> not hitting the ball more than 50% of the time, then... And, like, all this emphasis
1: on, like, aesthetics and weird, undefined metrics of success that are not just hitting and getting on base and stuff like that, and the line about the ugly girlfriend, like, that is allegedly a real thing, but, like, they were referring to, it suggests the player doesn't have good eyes, rather than, he has no confidence, and like, you know, oh, his girlfriend's are six, and it's like, oh, Jesus Christ.
0: It's weird for a sport, and obviously, like, the entire kickback against this is, why is a sport based around these gut feels mm-hmm. and... These kind of, like, superstitions and things that don't actually have an impact on the game versus, like, this is how well this player actually performs. Like, if you tell them to do something and they do it this many times, then surely they are a better prospect. Mm. than I have a gut feel about them that on a good day they can do this because...
1: This is the biggest thing here that rings so true. Because, again, like, I don't have that much familiarity with baseball. Like, the punchline here is, you know, two Brits talking about baseball. What the fuck do they know? I will actually put myself forward as an expert in the field of basketball but it does translate and rings true of like this old guard gatekeepery style we have the hidden knowledge and like the resistance that he meets throughout this movie is so accurate because bill james is the famous the sabermetrics stuff of the advanced statistics revealing like you know the secrets of baseball and, all that. and they're like you know he never played baseball he doesn't know what he's talking about this isn't traditional baseball this won't work blah 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 and i hear that in basketball all the time it's like basketball's gotten smaller the era of the multiple seven-foot to stomping around has gone away and constantly the are like retired players who they have as analysts are like nah, they need a big guy and it's like but that's not how the game is played anymore and and it, it does ring incredibly true as as he fights against these people and like he even has that scene where he's like i've seen you sit there and tell someone when i know i know and you don't know it's this job of like, it's like a boys club, it's like, you know, we've all got all this experience and all of this and like we have the knowledge, we are powerful and really, they've been left behind by just (laughs) you know, computers, basically and this is a thing across all sports, like trying to get more into statistics and advanced stuff to like reveal things that are not immediately obvious and it is a massive issue of contention, but yeah. And like I said, that that scene where he keeps asking, what's the problem? we know what the problem is. It's like, good. Tell me what the problem is.
0: And then they they come up with so many different ways to phrase it the same problem, which is we're losing these three good players.
1: Yeah, and and him saying if we try to play like the Yankees in here, we will lose to the Yankees out there. And it's like, yeah, like you don't have their payroll. If you try and approach it from a pure position of talent acquisition, like you will get fucked. You need to do it in weird, creative ways. So off he goes to the Cleveland Indians to try and do some trades. They say no. He feels a bit frustrated that they're not cooperating, but he. Knows notices that this young kind of no confidence no charisma guy who he doesn't know is like whispering in ears and then suddenly the trades that they're receptive to are going away and so he approaches them afterwards and yes this is Peter Brand who has a different outlook on this and like his little speech about like there is a misunderstanding with where runs come from and stuff like that and like I really like this idea that like he's meeting him in the parking lot like he's fucking deep throat or something (laughs) because he's just so (laughs) nervous. of us to talk do shit. We,
0: do we know why they've kind of changed it? Because obviously Peter Brand is based on Paul de Podesta. He asked like, them to
1: change his name because he didn't feel they were accurately representing him anymore. And
0: they were like, okay. Oh, I, I, I was just <laughs> genuinely intrigued about why they kind of like, went. he's the kind of the main character in the movie that is noticeably different to mm. the original interpretation or yeah. the, the actual person. I
1: think that changes around the time that Sorkin comes on board and Hill takes the part, because it was originally Dimitri Martin and it was yeah the named character, but yeah, he asked and they they didn't legally have to but they were like yeah okay and they, they just make up this this guy and like Jonah Hill gets an Academy Award nomination for this and I wouldn't, I don't know if it's not deserved, but I've seen him be way better than this, I feel.
0: <laughs> I think he is better. I think this is just that kind of surprise moment where he's doing something completely different to what he's done beforehand. I do think he's very solid in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think the arc of this movie is based around the baseball team and it isn't so much reliant on Jonah Hill or Philip Seymour Hoffman because both of them kind of stop having things to do <laughs> once the streak is done, yeah. Or once the streak is started like Philip Seymour Hoffman's role in this movie is pretty much just he is falsely attributed to the person who's like taking the team across the line kind of thing Uh,
1: like oh poor him they're ruining this team for him and then when they succeed it's purely because of him it's like
0: what (laughs) but yeah like it is this thing where I don't think it's a movie which is capable of having character arcs that are satisfying because it kind of all has to serve at the altar of what is the arc of the team and what is the arc of baseball in, in this movie
1: Billy Bean is undeniably like In this, for a baseball GM, he's about as interesting as it gets because he doesn't fit the traditional bill, and, like, the way they characterize him here, it's like, yeah, there is a human story there, but ultimately, we're making this movie because this tiny little rinky-dink team, just to be simplistic, set a major record with no marquee players, so it's like, that's crazy, let's make a film about that. Billy is the closest they get to, like, a full character arc where we know anything about them outside of their professional role, um, and even the stuff
0: with the daughter,
1: I was shocked on a rewatch how underbaked that is in a lot of ways, like, she shows up here and there for, like, 60 seconds, scenes
0: yeah in my in my head when i saw it in the cinema i was like oh the daughter's like a major crux of this they're spending so much time together she's like at all the games and stuff like that and i was like no they have two scenes together and then she plays a song over the closing credits that didn't come out for six years at the time the movie is set but you
1: know fuck it unless they're suggesting that she wrote the song (laughs) she wrote the song and a professional artist stole it from her Peter, like, sells Billy on his idea, and I think it is compatible with Billy's, where, like, this is a completely different approach. You can get value for money in a way that will equalise the odds, as it were. It's kind of edited into, like, three different bits, but I just... We do learn around this stretch about Billy's past. In 1979, he was this, like, highly touted prospect, and... The scouts were like giving it the full works like to his parents. He needs to go pro now. He shouldn't go to college. He needs to go pro. He has a load of money. And then he flames out. And he probably could have benefited from going to college. And it's why he hates scouts, basically. But like they, 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 they got it so wrong. Lie. Yeah.
0: And and it's part of the fun. Like obviously he's already hired Peter at this point, but yeah, like he, on the he, phone <laughs> call to Peter, he asks him and said, like, when would you have drafted me? Yeah. And Peter's just like, Oh, you were great, you were great, you were great. And he goes, like, when would you have drafted yeah, me?
1: don't bullshit me, yeah, and then he's like, yeah, I would have offered you, I would have drafted you in the ninth with no signing bonus, because I assume you would have turned it down and gone to college, which is what you should have done. I do think it's a little bit funny that, like, they clearly value this dude's opinion enough to nix trades that he's proposing, but then they're willing to sell him, and it's like, I don't know if maybe that deal was done with someone who doesn't know who the fuck he is, or something, or they're like, well, we don't value him that much. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, that is, that is the interesting part of this entire
0: conversation, is that, obviously, he does have the ear of... Mark Shapiro. He keeps going like,
1: why does Mark listen to you? Who are you? He says, whose nephew are you? Or whatever. But no, he's just like an economics whiz kid from Yale who is a bit awkward looking and yeah. I think that's the big thing here is that like, the way they communicate this philosophy and they do get into it and they show all these like spreadsheets and I'm sure at that point you were just erect.
0: But, um... (laughs) (laughs) So many numbers, although just the way they were talking about numbers I was like, just say percentages, don't go like 0.368. But that's how they do it in,
1: in American sports. It's always point and then three, three decimal, decimal places. places. And it's like, what? This is not just save percentages, you weirdos. <laughs> but then sometimes they get, like, a 1.07. You're like, what?
0: So what is not 100%? No, that's when he's, taught, doing...
1: he's talking about their combined hit rate between the three of them is, like, one point whatever. And then if you divide... But that's three people together, so... Yeah. so
0: it's just the average yeah they're using all these fundamental math terms but yeah. just kind of deploying them in the confusing way
1: yes they take this stuff that like they make it seem so obvious it's like well duh of course you should do this but it also is done in a way where Peter looks smart and Billy looks smart and everyone else doesn't necessarily look stupid for not getting it it seems like an obvious thing but not in a way that's like making everyone look stupid for not thinking of it first kind of thing that would be my take on how they present all of this because yeah he like gets into all of these players that have been undervalued the idea of doing it by committee i think is the big thing because there is just this ingrained thing of you need stars to win and you need individual heroics and the argument that no instead you need a solid 25 person team that together will get you the results but like on the surface
0: of it it's like well who's your big player and like, yeah, like, the, the kind of fo- the focus is more on we had one player that did one thing very well. Yeah, And his comeback is like, we don't need one player that does one thing very well. We need, maybe not more well-rounded people, but people who do the things that will get us wins that yeah. we need. Like, we want people who are going to walk.
1: You'll see it later on where they go and coach them on the way they want them to play. Like, no bunting, no stealing base, just one base at a time. Get a hit, get some walks, one base at a time, and we'll end up with the most runs. Don't swing for the fences, don't take the big risk like, you know. And we don't actually see them hitting that many home runs. Like, I think the only one we really see by them is, uh, Scott Hatterberg's one at the end. We yeah, see them a get us home runs scored against them. Just this idea, they say, we're gonna rebuild him in the aggregate. Also, they're cheaper as well. Yes, indeed, because, like, you know, they go and get Chad Bradford who throws really fucking funny. I don't know who this actor is they got that can perfectly imitate this dude's weird-ass pitching style, but props to them. Chris Pratt's character, Scott Hatterberg, like, he has nerve damage and he can't play his designated position anymore and then David Justice is old basically. (laughs) This scene where you know we go back into the scouting room I love Billy just nonchalantly tossing names onto the board they've intricately arranged this whole wall of names and he's just writing his own ones and just chucking them up and they're just landing at whatever angle and ignoring all of their advice and pointing to Peter and stuff like that like this is kind of the big scene like this is the trailer scene on Netflix and
0: it's yeah, just this is, this is presumably what gets Hill his nomination as well is mm. the rapport with Billy Bean. Kind of the pointing and...
1: Like, you want me to speak? He's like, when I point at you, yes. <laughs> in amidst this, we don't just get the, the arguments from the scouts. We meet Artie Howe, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is worried about his job security. Like, he is in the last year of his contract. He says, I cannot run this team on a one-year contract. And Billy's like, well, of course you can. And And him equating it to like, well, you were a player. You were on a one-year contract that doesn't make you feel good and then they get into this awkward exchange where he's you know he's saying like well I won a lot of te- uh, of games so it's weird that you're not rewarding me with, with a contract and he's like well you didn't win the most important game so that doesn't mean anything because that is the key premise and that's the closing line like, like Billy is still trying to win the last game of the season And, like, there are so many measures of success in sport, but really the measure is winning. And, like, when he goes to the owner in that first sort of stretch of the movie, he's like, well, my bar is a championship and I don't feel yours is. And publicly every team talks about wanting to win it, but, like, you do hear these rumblings that essentially the board have have like said like yeah we would like to come third or like we would like to make
0: the playoffs and it's like that's not
1: the way to conduct a successful team
0: we've weighed up the cost cost benefit analysis exactly this, and we've we have decided that coming in third is about the amount of money that we want to invest because getting whatever kudos we'd get for the win yeah. isn't worth the additional 20 million 30 million cash injection that it would require and the, and that's the
1: thing that like line. so many teams are run as a business and like the money has to come from somewhere so you do have to have these billionaires buying up these teams but then they don't see them as i mean a few of them are like yeah i'm fully committed i'll spend what you want to win but like some of them are just like i see this as a business it
0: has to stay in the black i will spend this much and no more don't care this many people come to our games this yeah. many people buy by snacks buy beer by yeah. whatever i'm not going to invest more money than that because it's not like you're going to increase the fan base footprint of the team in any appreciable way if you win
1: win mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman's role is like quite understated, but like he is very memorable here as this guy that is just so frustrated by this, like, young hotshot GM who is superior to him, but he's, I assume
0: he's, he's supposed just... to be younger than him, but like, yeah. He's just a nice Presence, kind of, like, to have, like, you're just happy when Philip Team Hoffman shows up, even if it is for this kind of, like, and I'm not going to say he's sleepwalking through this performance, <laughs> but it's definitely not, like, asking a hell of a lot from him. No, he
1: could do like, this. He, he can do this in his sleep. He gives you a lot for, what, five minutes of screen time? Six? <laughs> Something like that? Yeah, um, I mean, I
0: think it is, I think it's kind of a shame that he doesn't get a lot to do. I mean, obviously he has The Master the year after this, which is a movie we're sadly not going to be covering, but he's absolutely terrific in that. But he conveys an awful lot of, kind Kind of laid back, kind of not aggression, but like apathy or or hesitance to kind of like the way that they're doing this. Like he isn't angry man throwing things around he's just like I'm playing baseball the way that I want to play baseball or the way I know to play baseball mm-hmm. and you are making it very difficult for me by giving me your island of misfit toys
1: yes and that is the thing he does later apologise like I should have brought you in on what we're trying to do earlier and like this idea that like they're running the team but then his position entirely exists to literally run the team like on the field and like if he's not on board this doesn't work and that is what we'll get into in a minute
0: I do think it's interesting that they don't kind of cover the fallout of this because Looking it up, like Art Howe leaves to the New York Mets after this, presumably off the back of like the streak and mm. being the manager of like the team with the streak and stuff like that. And I just wonder, like, what the actual conversation around that is. Whether or not people realised it was the decisions that Billy Bean was making that were bringing the team across the line because he only serves two years at the Mets after yeah. this.
1: The radio voices that we hear throughout the movie do a great job of kind of summing this all up, where like they are all sceptical of what's being done and they put a lot of praise on like the old guard style. Um, Of of the manager of the team and stuff, and like his line later about I'm trying to play the team in a way that I can explain to people in job interviews, essentially. I think it's the kind of thing where like it's a ripple effect where like people didn't realize at first how huge what he was doing was, and then you see all the teams basically to some extent use this kind of stuff these days, and that the Red Sox won within two years by using his ideas. I just think in the initial wave, they're like, "Nah, well, flash in the pan." But the manager got them to a 20-game win streak, so we'll hire him.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's interesting that a lot of the voices that you hear on the radios are kind of people that we recognise. The voices from within the scouting team, like kind of people who's maybe not doing as much during the actual season because, like, you you don't necessarily need scouts around constantly when the season's going on. They're probably like finding the players for later on in the year. But like, you can hear it's a lot of people who are working with the Oakland A's who kind of can't understand what's going on which makes sense for sports, because, like, who are you going to get as an expert on the team? You're going to go talk to people who actually work for the team. The guy that he fires, the head
1: scout, goes on the radio immediately afterwards and just trashes the entire concept, and he's like, oh, my sympathies are with Art Howe, and stuff like that. That This is a thing that met with resistance, is, is the ongoing thing. We talked about, like, the lack of human sort of character development. It kind of seems, from this first scene with Chris Pratt, that they are trying to do that with scotty h like he is the player that gets the most sort of human story going on but it kind of fizzles out later but like billy goes to visit him in person to recruit him and like you know he looks so depressed before the phone call and then he starts to slowly perk up and oh god someone wants me (laughs) and then admitting he can't throw anymore confused by the offer to play first base i really like when billy's like it's not that hard tell him and he's like it's incredibly hard
0: yeah Yeah, like i feel like they had an idea in their head that scott hatterberg was going to be like the through line of this portion of the movie because obviously it's his home run that nets them that 20th win
1: the idea of it this this like injured guy who can't play his traditional position anymore that took up a position he had no familiarity with that's interesting on paper but yeah he can i just feel he kind of fades away a bit as it goes.
0: Um... Again, again, everyone is having to serve at yeah. the altar of the team and mm-hmm. the game itself, and so they are trying to do these kind of like screenwriting 101 ideas at the centre of it, but it's mm-hmm. why as when you bring up Soderbergh doing it and doing it with talking heads and making it a bit more arty it yeah. sounds a bit more interesting because they're kind of trying to thread this needle of human interest story with what is essentially a story about the entirety of baseball and the, the structures and kind of what's holding it back as a sport in some ways mm-hmm. and it's just an interesting thing and like it, an inter- thoroughly interesting casting of Chris Pratt at this point because obviously Chris yeah. Pratt is kind of a couple of years into Parks and Recreation at this point and this is the start of him doing the kind of like wild fluctuations in weight
1: yes because when he had his first audition they told him he was too fat and he just went home and started working out and checking in on if the if the role had been cast yet and then eventually he sends them a picture of him looking buff after he's lost 30 pounds and gets the role and like Zero Duck 30 I don't know when that was filmed in relation to this but like he does develop this reputation of basically he cuts so much weight for a specific role looks really good and then like people are making fun of how like you know chubby he looks again and like you know, the guy from I, I Parks think... and Rec looks like this. You know that became the thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think I think he I think he filmed these in like sequential gaps in like Parks and Recreation seasons. So he does this in between a season of Parks and Recreation, and then the next break in seasons he does mm. Zero Dark Thirty, and obviously he like gets more shredded then. Yeah. Then he has like a year off where he puts weight back on. And then it's and Guardians. He kind of goes, and, and then yeah. he does Guardians, and then I don't think he's put the weight back on since then, because like it re- I think it is that like one-two punch of him doing these more dramatic roles mixed with comedy that start to net him these kind of more leading man roles. Because he is like an interesting presence, and he's definitely a memorable presence in both of them. It's just interesting to think that someone looked at these two roles where he's buff and able to thread this drama with his comedy, and then went like, right, he is now Hollywood leading man, 1A on the core sheet for some of the biggest movies yeah. released in the last six years this we can put on a poster <laughs> like,
1: it's sad that that is how all this goes but you know this is basically his coming out
0: party in a lot of ways he does a lot of like comedy movies he shows up in that like circle of people who are probably friends with with Anna Faris and stuff like that and he'll show wow. up in kind of movies of like that ilk. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, he's like. Uh, uh, in this era, at least. Yeah, he's like
1: the best friend character or whatever in a bunch of movies. Five year engagement, and that movie where Vince Vaughn has a hundred kids or whatever. All that shit. <laughs> That's a movie that happened. So, yeah, the season begins. They're getting ripped apart art doesn't play the players they envisioned in the way
0: they wanted they lose a lot I think this this section of the movie is interesting to show the kind of the general pushback that they're getting but it is a lot of the kind of the same information being relayed to you an awful lot where it's like oh they keep on playing Peña they keep on playing Peña until obviously like it boils over and Billy makes the decision that he makes I, I, I do think it is like they do like maybe one or two many games of like they keep playing Peña they do yeah
1: and there's a lot of seeding of stuff in this movie, where it's like, it's a throwaway scene with David Justice outraged they have to pay for their own soda, and then later you see him complaining directly to Jonah Hill about it, and then later, that is all for the payoff of Billy convincing a rival GM to pay for all of their soda for the season, and stuff like that, and it's fun, but it's just, like, it does become this, like, cascade of tiny moments. I do like Howe's line of first base is the moon to him. (laughs) And, like, you know, I like him, he's a good guy, but he is not gonna be able to do this. And you see the media, like, brutally grilling the big four signings they made and, like, oh but how does that make you feel? You're not making any money and like can you still play and like are you healthy and like you know you see the toll it's taking on them and like they're not really especially like Chad Bradford who's like never played in the majors before I don't think or like not at this level or whatever and like he is not equipped to deal with this kind of like scrutiny from the media but yeah like Billy does end up having to force Artie's hand. He trades or sends down all of the players he's been playing ahead of the ones he wants and it's one of the scenes where he's driving and he's just like fuck it! It's this genuine feeling of like, right? I, I have to go all all in on this and by yeah, trying to I'm, force his I'm, hand I'm, if this doesn't work out, I am fired <laughs> and like yeah, Peter am, tells am, him like am, you shouldn't trade Peña because he's
0: going to be an all-star
1: and he's like nah, fuck it why should that matter? Like having to explain these moves or whatever.
0: The whole idea of like, I'm going to get fired at the end of the season if we carry on doing this. I want to start winning games. Art isn't going to work with me so I need to put it in a position where Art has to work with me because I'm going to leave him no other option yeah. than to play the game the way I need it to be played.
1: Yeah, it's like well, I'm playing Peña. It's like yeah, you can play the team how you but Peña doesn't play for us anymore so <laughs> him being furious at the players for like partying and in in, he's like you know you're losing is losing fun and like smashing shit up and be like that's what losing sounds like and then smashing more stuff on the way out like all of that sort of stuff and we also get like this stretch of him kind of mentoring Peter and, like, you know, making him practice cutting a player. Hitting him with all the comebacks that he might expect of, like, I just bought a house here, my kid just started a school. And Peter is just so adamant, I don't want to do this and everything. And, like, he then has to be the one to tell Pena he got traded. And, and, and he does ultimately do it in a very tense cold way and as soon as Peña leaves the room he's like
0: (sighs) that kind of thing. Yeah I do think it's interesting though because then they compare it to Billy a couple of seconds later and in (sighs) some ways his cutting or like announcing of the trade of Giambi is like (sighs) a bit colder because he just calls him into the room. He does it for show
1: in front of art I think is what makes it brutal. He's like yeah take a seat and then he's like yeah you're off to this team and they're like oh yeah he's gone too. The way
0: he says things is Mm -hmm. more tender than the way that Peter does it.
1: I think, it's, but, yeah, I think it's, because he's got that confidence about him and he's played the game so he knows what they want to hear and stuff like that. Whereas Peter is, it, like, it, he is from a world of, like, cold statistics. It doesn't come naturally to him so he does have to perform it and it comes across as just so stilted. And it's kind of brutal, like, sitting there, like, you know, these players are kind of going to better situations for the most part, but, like, they take it so hard that you see it, like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, does Carlos Paynear even know who peter is in some ways and then he's like is that it all right bye then (laughs) it's just like yeah it's really brutal this is also one of the many scenes we get that i think are electric with billy wheeling and dealing via the phone to you know to get rid of Pena and all that sort of stuff the better one is the trade deadline one in a minute but yeah just I, I love whenever he's just like constantly like getting different GMs on the phone and lying to them and putting them on on hold so Peter can get him like a name and stuff like that again, like, again
0: it's it's this stuff it's the scenes in which Pitt and Hill are kind of playing off each other that yeah. are what got them both their Oscar nominations yeah. I feel did, obviously they, Pitt has more emotional stuff to do the outside of it but like Hill is very good as like supporting yeah. these scenes Yeah,
1: these are what I remember. I remember these sort of wheeling and dealing scenes. I remember them like having that confrontation with Art and just telling him, Yeah, we've traded all these players. And I remember the scouting sessions, and like everything else is like solid. But like these are like the big money things
0: that they, that they which yeah. are presumably the stuff that this is where Sorkin kind of comes in and tears up what the original yeah. ideas were. They start to give the players this advice on how they envision
1: the team playing, and that starts to translate into a baby winning streak. And like the the big tense one is with David Justice, who is you know the veteran of the team. So Stephen Bishop actually played a little bit of baseball, and his nickname was Young Justice because he looked a lot like him, which is why they went and got him. And I, I love that during this conversation he is fucking hitting that ball like an absolute cannon like (laughs) in between these lines of dialogue just cracking the damn thing and you know they have this kind of tense interaction where it's like you know this stuff isn't gonna work on me i've seen it blah 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 and then him being like right let's be honest you don't have long left you're desperate to just stay in the majors and i am using you and like we can both benefit if we're just honest about this and he's like yeah okay fair
0: it's very much like this is a mutually beneficial transactional relationship between the two of us like you get to stay in your high paying job Mm -hmm. I'm gonna rub your face a little bit by announcing that like your old employers are paying for half your salary at the moment because that's how desperate they were to get rid of you well because
1: he says like oh what you're special and he's like well you pay me seven million dollars a year so yeah I'm special It's like well actually I don't pay you seven million dollars a year (laughs) but yeah ultimately landing in that place of him like mentoring Scotty H a little bit like because he just massively lacks confidence I really love him making his little try at it. And he's like, So what's your biggest fear? He's like, um a baseball being hit in my general direction. He's like, No, but really. He's like, Yeah, no, that's it. And he's like well, good luck. <laughs> I'm just like, he's just really not good at it. But yeah, you know, I tried.
0: Do, I, <laughs> d- I do think it's an interesting thing the movie does is the movie spends a lot of time hand-wringing about who is playing first base. Is it Pena or is it Hatberg? But obviously, because it's based on real life and this is like what was happening behind the scenes, there's no payoff to him being first base other than he's actually like playing the game and goes out and hits the home run. It's not like a game is won because you've got Hatberg at first base.
1: Yeah, we don't really see them playing games. We don't see the, like, why these three... But, you know, Jonah gives his justifications as to why they should go get these people, but, like, you don't see that translate on the field, and it's probably a cost-saving measure, like, having to go out and recreate close-up shots of baseball games with... Actors, but it's interesting that like there is such a lack of emphasis of the actual sport being played, yeah, except like for that more extended about... sequence in the, in the big streak that's
0: coming in a minute. But yeah. but yeah. I get I guess it's all about like this war of attrition that they're actually doing, which is like we are getting runs, we are getting walks, we are getting like things that probably aren't the most satisfying thing. Like they're not yeah. what baseball movies are normally based around. You don't make a baseball movie around a team that just walks around.
1: Yeah, and like bases. And that is a thing, like, that is one of the counter arguments to, like, the statistic based thing, like, cutting it down to the most brutally efficient version of itself isn't actually as exciting sometimes for fans to watch. Like, they want to see the big names do the big sexy things and, like, there is a basketball team that famously, they only do layups and three-pointers and they do nothing else and they are so boring to watch. (laughs) Even though that stuff is, in theory, the exciting stuff just the way they play is so frustrating but they are purely in on this one style of like right these are the two most valuable shots in basketball that's all we're taking but are they good do they win games they win a lot of games yeah but it doesn't help that they have like one of the most hated players in in the world but, like, and they're so committed to, like, this new style of basketball, and, like, it's kind of frustrating when they do win, because I'm like, no, shouldn't succeed! (laughs) So we get my favourite scene in the movie, at the trade deadline, Billy initiates an elaborate deal to acquire Ricardo Rincon. I like that this is the first guy he wanted from the Cleveland Indians earlier on, when he went to them, and it got nixed by Peter, but, like, he has to call three separate teams or whatever, and, like, getting two of them interested in their players or someone else's players ahead of Rincon, so that left as the only buyer and stuff like that and like Jonah's little fist pump
0: yeah like like Jonah sat there on the computer kind of like scrolling through looking at player statistics yeah. to see who's a good swap who do we want to, like we want to get rid of this player, who do we want in exchange and Jonah's like well none of the players on the team are like popping out to him until he finally gets to like the one that he likes the look of
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. and like one of the people hangs up on them and it's like, oh shit we've lost him and they're like you know having to call him back and that's the, the owner shots, isn't yeah. it yeah yeah. sorry yeah
0: it's uh, it, like Bobby coach himself
1: (laughs) yes when he makes Jonah talk to him and he says please and he shoots in this little look of like I wouldn't say please and then he's like yes I added the please like they, they those two know each other so well like it's a very good quick character thing and like
0: it does lead to that brutal moment where it's like okay we've just bought a player for $225,000 we've now got one too many players
1: yeah and then having to cut that player and like you know after you made such a point of he doesn't go into the locker room he doesn't develop personal relationships with them and then we've just seen this extended montage where he's doing exactly that he's making little jokes with the players all of that and now he has to sit down in front of one of them and cut them in the locker room you can see it pains him a little bit more, and it is such a brutal scene where this guy is just like so pleased to be talking to him and stuff like that. But like, you're looking at the dude and his two knee braces, and it's like, really? Did you not think that maybe you're a problem? But can't have 26 players, so off he goes. Very sad. But they run off their, their record 20 game win streak in spite of Billy going oh, against his superstition.
0: I've just, just read on Magmante's uh, Wikipedia page that apparently he was released days before vesting his pension because of the acquisition of Ricardo Rincon which is that's the kind of brutal shit that you like the movie isn't covering like it's that kind of stuff where if they actually said like yeah. obviously the scene becomes fucking comical if it's like oh days away from my pension <laughs> it's so. my last day on the force chief <laughs> that is the thing like, like the brutal side of sport
1: that like there are so many human stories here that and like you know he brings up oh I just bought a house my kid just started school and it's like there are like hundreds of these per year the number of players that like you know the big star players they will stay in one place for a long time like it's rare for them to move but the sort of journeymen who end up playing for half of the teams in the league like what does that home life look like like do you even bother buying a house when you move to a new team or do you just fly like
0: from the idea of playing a sport professionally but literally being used as a bargaining chip Mm -hmm. to like move around teams as like a deal sweetener must be so like maybe you get traded with like a good player because like they're getting an even better player in exchange but like knowing that you are the 0.25% of that deal or whatever (laughs) yeah
1: so yeah they run off their big record 20 game streak in spite of billy going against his superstition about attending the games i really like that they put it into context with the commentary like they talk about babe ruth's famous like you know the murderers row of the yankees who only managed nine wins in a row in their season and everything and like bringing it back to that
0: like the yankees versus the a's type type of thing yeah, like it's like statistically, a sport in which you play multiple games against one team in a row. That oh you God, play. It's so boring. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> but that's the whole thing. Is like the whole thing with baseball is that you play is it three games in a row? And I, th- like, I think so. Yeah, and it's like best of three or whatever. The idea that because this sport is based around so much of like playing the same team, the idea of winning twenty games in a row is kind of alien because statistically, mm-hmm. you should be losing one in every three games potentially.
1: Yeah, they should be able to squeak out one. Again. Against you even if you are the better team or whatever yeah and like you know you hear the commentator saying it defies everything we know about baseball and, and stuff like that and we haven't even mentioned it but like showering his ex-wife robin wright calling him and saying that oh we're really proud of you that actually means quite a lot to him and, and his daughter has expressed this concern about so you're not gonna lose your job because then you'd have to move away, right? And like, you know, him sort of over overcompensating by like that conversation is finished and it's like the next day and he's like, I'm gonna be fine and she's like, okay
0: this is for you more than her isn't it but like the entire thing is like the daughter calls him and it's like dad mm. go back you're not gonna lose because and then he flips on the radio and here's the score and it's like 11 to nothing yeah like, like
1: they're like comically winning and so <laughs> and I, it is kind of cute that like once he turns up they, they blow this 11 nothing lead and he immediately like has to leave you know he heads backstage again and everything but then ultimately Scotty H hits his huge home run and secures the streak in real life, he was fined for you because he wasn't aware he was going to hit so he had to just borrow a bat and it was a different one than he had a contract with and he was fined money for using a rival's bat in like one of the biggest sports moments in history. Wow. Um, yeah, business
0: sports, man. Pe- sports is petty.
1: It's so petty. Despite this enormous success, they do lose again in the playoffs and immediately the critics, as Billy predicted, just dismiss everything they did and he, he was like, they will erase us, they will-, they will dismiss us and it is really sad to like see it be
0: this big montage of told-you-sos from the media and everything. And but I, d- I do think that is the interesting fall-down of this method, is statistically, yes, it does work, because you're playing a very broad swathe of games and you're playing god knows how many games per season and if you're using statistics you've got a bigger playing field to play this off of and you're more likely to have the wins because you can offset it with the losses but in playoffs where it is literally elimination i can see where this idea of playing baseball kind of just begin to fall down because it's like if you have a, a two streak bad run, you Mm -hmm. can't pick it up later with statistics, because you literally only had those two games to win, and if you lose them, you're out.
1: That is the biggest counter-argument, is that, like, these advanced statistics generally translate into wins in the, like, regular season, but then when it comes down to playoff time, stars win games, and, like, experience wins games, and that kind of stuff, and, like, your sort of aggregated style, where in the end you will win X number of games, doesn't mean as much when it's like, you have to win these games. But
0: I guess it's useful in terms of like if you keep on winning games during the season you can get more money which means you can get better players which means you can yeah. have this kind of and i'm assuming that's what the red sox is is they have this kind of split difference like that we have the big players yeah they, they also, have
1: significantly more money it's sort of, I like, I, I take the pitch here because, yeah, he gets offered a record-breaking amount of money to be the GM of the Red Sox. And it's phrased to him as, like, you know... And, and putting it back against that opening graphic of, like, the Yankees paid $1.4 million per win versus your 260000 per win and stuff like that. And I take it as, like, what you did didn't quite work. What if you did this but with a slightly higher money threshold so we can get you slightly better players than these ones, and, like, will that work? It's kind of wild seeing this this owner, like, fully on board with what he does, and, like, you know, you know the first guy through the wall gets bloody, that kind of stuff, and, like, any team that is not completely tearing down their roster to try and copy you as a dinosaur, like, it's nice to see him validated in that way, and, like, he has turned up here thinking, I'm definitely not gonna take this. And, like, you know, he, he gets slid the, the, the sum of money, and it's, like, what was it, like, $12.5 million
0: or something? Yeah, like $12.5 million, <laughs> the most any GM has ever been offered to play in sports ever. Yes.
1: And a ludicrous. I, I actually quite like that idea, that, like, we're really behind this this idea of cost efficient spending and we're willing to show that by investing more money than anyone ever has in in a GM role but I guess it's like an investment in a long-term cheaper future but and we get this sort of flip where he doesn't want to take it and Peter is the one that basically talks him into it by being like it's not about the money it's about the validation and he shows him this clip of this dude who fell over while running not realizing he'd already hit a home run and like you know this not so subtle metaphor that like you know Billy you did something bigger than you realise. Just because you didn't win, you have forever changed baseball. And he's like, I will take the money. But then the big closing scene that everyone remembers listening to a CD, his daughter burned for him of her singing this song that earlier on we saw him take her to buy a guitar or whatever and like, you know she's humming and he encourages us to actually sing and it's this like, surprisingly mature, you know, it's this thing of like, oh my god this is my tiny daughter and look how mature she is here. And like, it's it all hinges on his visual reaction to this song, like Brad Pitt's and like, seeing him like, cry while listening to this and that changes his mind like that's that's the whole movie that's why you get these oscar nominations basically the little on-screen montage of yeah the red sox finally won two years later and billy's still trying to win the last game it's just it's just a really nice ending and like potentially an overly romantic sort of idea of sport but like no he turned down the money to be with his daughter but like hey people do that yeah
0: because so. the, the red sox do make the investments they actually hire the guy they to... did hire bill james yes so yeah.
1: i think it's the idea that because i mean there is potentially an argument here that Peter is the MVP of this team and, it, and and Billy is just kind of it's Peter's words coming out of Billy's mouth but I think there is sort of a value in, in Billy's kind of know-how of how to actually conduct this stuff and realise that vision in a way that Peter couldn't do by himself and I think that's the idea is yeah. swap Peter for Bill James but you're still going to be the guy that makes the deals that is so good at like pitching people uh, for trades and stuff like that And
0: I, I would also assume that he probably would try and bur- Peter Whitman I, I, I guess, yeah. If he had made the
1: Well, same he moves. says, I'll call you, doesn't he? And it's like, yeah. the inference that like, I'm going to trade for you. <laughs> or something like that. I
0: didn't actually realise that John Henry, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, also owns Liverpool, so obviously he is king of owning teams that have not won. <laughs> for, a <long> like, <laughs> for a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Obviously the Boston Red Sox was like 100 years, wasn't it? It was like yeah. 1918 to 2004 versus 30 years for Liverpool, but...
1: Yeah. The curse. The curse of the Red Sox. Yeah, and they yeah, they. I know this from Lost. Of course, yeah. I I think it's maybe some missed opportunities to develop some of the human stories, but I think it occupies quite a unique space in sort of the pantheon of sports movies. And I I saw someone, I think it's the guy that does the voiceover, the the radio stuff, where he's, like, tearing them apart, who is, like, an enormous baseball fan, and he said that, like, this is a sports movie for grown-ups. And, like, that's maybe a little bit oversimplistic, because there are some very, like, mature sports movies. But like there is always this like romantic emphasis on the on what's happening on the field, on the court, whatever, and like these these larger than life moments and, like, this shifts the focus entirely. It will forever remain special for that reason, and it's hard to replicate. I don't think I've seen anything since this that, like, is anywhere near similar to it or as good as it.
0: Yeah, but. I mean, but it's interesting, because there are an awful lot of baseball movies there that are. that like people really like. It's like Moneyball and A League of Their Own and Field of Dreams yeah. and Bad News Bears and... Mr.
1: 3000.
0: <laughs> but no, it, it is an interesting thing where, like, baseball seems to be quite a fertile ground for making Movies about the human story. It's Americana.
1: Yet, it's like the magic of the like. It all comes down to this and hitting a home run. This is like, the, the
0: sport you play when you're a little kid. Yeah, like, you do, yeah, you do little league and stuff like that. But then it's interesting that like the the one that's kind of the crossover Oscar hit that like gets the nomination <laughs> is takes the one all that's just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like we're not about the, We're not about the actual human element of the game or the Americana. We're here about just cold hard statistics and how you can break a sport yeah. down to. literally just four numbers on a spreadsheet (laughs) it is
1: my favorite movie Uh,
0: (laughs) yeah no i mean again i think it's a remarkably solid movie i like i know people who utterly swear the the altar of it i also know like the person who i saw it with when i first saw it in cinema came out of it and was like this is the worst movie that i've ever seen (laughs) because it is like i can see it as someone who is not interested in the kind of breaking down of what the traditional role of sports is it Mm. can be pretty boring because it really doesn't have that human element like if you're not interested in like sad dad Brad Pitt it kind of lacks an emotional hook
1: that is the other thing like I was sort of joking at the beginning by saying, like, you know, baseball films make baseball look interesting when it isn't, but, like, for non-sports fans, like, people who don't like to actually sit down and watch an actual game, sports movies, generally, they give you this, like, perfect version, this idealised thing where, like, every sports movie has this impossible moment that will happen, and, like, oh, look at the comeback, or look at this improbable thing.
0: A sports movie is normally the same length as a sports game if you were to (laughs) sit down and watch it, except you get to watch about five or six games that are just the highlights.
1: Yeah, but, like, they, yeah, they try and, they make it seem sexier than it is, and all of that stuff, and it's normally how you, like, handhold the people that don't like the sport, but, like, this movie doesn't do that at all, so it's, like, so it's about sport, and it doesn't even make it seem exciting. Great. But, uh, against all of these odds, it does, and it doesn't even compensate by being, like, we're just gonna really heavily focus on the, like, the people behind the scenes. It's like, not really. Kind of, like, a yeah, little like, bit Brad it, Pitt a, and no one else.
0: <laughs> it really is a little bit of a ma- magic trick, and yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's in my, like, top Top five no. Sorkin script, but the thing is, it, it I think it does help having like someone like Steven Sallon to kind of like come in there and like structure this thing, and then you've got Aaron Sorkin to come in and punch up presumably some of the dialogue, and then you finish off with Bennett Miller kind of. I do think the pacing and the kind of like the tone of the entire thing that Ben Ben and Miller kind of like pervades onto this is a really solid feel to a movie, even if it is cold in some ways.
1: Yeah, I do think if Sorkin writes this script from scratch, it potentially isn't as good of a movie, but maybe it's a better one. Like, (laughs) I don't really know, but I think describing it as a magic trick is a is a accurate way of saying it because there are so many factors here that should mean it's bad, and yet it's good. But it's also not like. Stella, I would put this very aggressively middle of the pack of the list we're gonna do or by the end of this 25 it's probably gonna be one of the lower ones but like i mean
0: i've I've got this at like an 8 out of 10 it's my least favorite of the ones i've seen so far but also i watched it last night and i was kind of wrapped the entire thing it's just it it's just a good solid movie from a year in which not that it was slim pickings but there's a lot of stuff that like (laughs) i wouldn't want to discuss over this like i think this is a more interesting discussion than a lot of the other stuff in 2011
1: Mm. however next week we will be discussing zero Dark Thirty, uh, just to keep the Chris Pratt streak alive. Our first female director so far on the volume, right?
0: Yes, yes. uh returning, returning director from the first volume, our fourth so far this yeah. miniseries. Catherine Bigelow, fresh off of Hurt Locker. Now, remember when, when
1: you I- at the last minute convinced us to do Hurt Locker, knowing I really don't like war movies, and then here we are again with the basically the sequel. <laughs> we, are,
0: yeah. we are getting this one out of the way, and this one's definitely less about the actual war element. Okay. Um, I've not seen this one since cinema i had it as my favorite movie of 2012 at the time i think rankings have shifted and i've now got like avengers as my favorite movie of 2012 as Mm -hmm. much of a basic bitch response that is Ah. but no this is i'm intrigued to see what i think about it because i think an awful lot of what i loved about it is kind of just the tension and watching it in the cinema so i'm intrigued to see what this does on a rewatch
1: well i've never seen it so Look forward to that, where I uh, get bombarded with a lot of the things I don't like, and then I'm confronted with some hard truths that maybe I should broaden my horizons a bit more. At least we're not doing Detroit. No, we are not. No, we are not. Although, you know, all support to John Boyega. And until next week, Benjamin, will there be
0: movies that go on an improbable win streak? Let me check my spreadsheet. I need to change. <laughs> I need to change the formatting so that it's like three decimal places. Though
1: so. that's a good joke because we we do actually have heavy amounts of spreadsheeting for this podcast. Uh, bye everyone. <laughs>